After God reveals to David his plan to establish the kingdom through his lineage, David is awestruck. This is the 15th sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 7, beginning in verse 18 through verse 29, the end of the chapter, 18 through 29, beloved of the Lord, This is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a a great while to come, And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. Wherefore, thou art great, O Lord God. For there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, in even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself and to make him a name and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever. And thou, Lord, art become their God. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as thou hast said. And let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of the servant, and let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, has revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee in house. Therefore hath thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. And now, O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Therefore, now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hath spoken it, and with thy blessing, let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. John writes to us in the Revelation of Jesus Christ by St. John, Revelation chapter 17, beginning in verse 11, beginning in verse 11 through verse 14. By the same spirit, the apostle records this, And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords, and king of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, 
the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. An eternal dynastic kingdom was always the plan of God for the inhabitants of the earth. God had established his Christ in order to bring salvation to the Gentile nations of the earth. It was always to be the gospel of the nations, the gospel of the kingdom. And while the possibility of a dynastic kingdom under the earthly leadership of Adam was offered, it was never God's intention to build his dynasty, his kingdom on the foundation of human frailty. The dynasty would be built by a perfect sinless man who could not sin, who would not sin, who had the fear of the Lord and the love of God stamped upon his heart. This dynasty would not be temporal, but eternal. And while it was to be built within the temporal realm of history, its foundation and duration, its durableness was to be eternal. David has offered the dynasty as a prefigurement of what Christ would accomplish. And upon hearing that the Lord is going to make David and his entire house, his entire lineage, his generational lineage, a royal dynastic kingdom representing the eternal kingdom of God, David is absolutely beside himself. Then went King David in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? He didn't say, what a wonderful creature I am, how I deserved all of these things because I'm David the giant killer. No, he said, who in the world am I? What am I? How am I getting such a blessing? Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? To take David from nothing in order to make him everything was an incredible act of sovereign power and grace. But to God, it was a simple thing. It was simply a decree of the Almighty. God said it and it was done. David recognizes this and is absolutely awestruck. He then asks God if his type of man from this very humble beginnings, even from this despised beginnings, as he was a shepherd which was very despised, a a vocation which was not an honorable thing. So he asks God, are you sure I'm the one that you want to carry on your legacy on earth as a prefigurement of the eternal kingdom of the Christ, of the true Christ? David may have even been referring to both himself and his family bloodline as if to say, do you really want my family bloodline to continue the legacy of God? Do you really want my children to continue the legacy and establish the kingdom of God? Notice verse 19, And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. This was nothing to you, Lord, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the matter of man, O Lord God? Note again the character of David. A great man. A great man a man elevated to heights unimaginable. And yet, in his own mind, in his own head, in his own heart, he thought of himself as nothing. That's the way we need to think about ourselves. And yet, 
God's answer to David was, I will elevate you and you will build my kingdom. Hearing this, David accepts that. He's not going to argue with God. He's going to take whatever God is giving him and he's going to do his best to honor his king. And this was God's calling. How could David argue with that? This was the irresistible commission call of God. He could not refuse. And understanding this, finally grasping this, coming to terms with this, David responds, and he says this in 20 and 21, And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. Notice, Adonai Yahweh knowest thy servant. You know me. For thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. So he's embracing this. He's embracing his commission. And he doesn't know what's going to befall him. It didn't matter. He embraces that fact and the commission that lies before him. And and understanding that and finally coming to terms with that, David breaks forth in thanksgiving, praise, and adoration. How could he not? How could he not thank God for the great commission of being a man of God? How can we refuse to continuously thank God for the grand commission that we have before God? Embracing this, he says this, Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God. For there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Now consider the particulars of this incredible exaltation. Notice firstly, David obviously knows his history. In fact, he's setting forth the history of Egypt when he says that. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself and to make him a name and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou hast redeemed to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. He's going back in history. He understood the history of the church. We need to understand the history of the church and God's deliverance of the church of Jesus Christ throughout history. That it was always the church of Jesus Christ, militant and triumphant. And David understood that. He knew his history. He knew the history of how God delivered his people during the days of Moses and Pharaoh at the Red Sea. And we know this since he uses the very same words which were sung by the children of Israel after being delivered from Pharaoh and his evil army. That was the song of Moses. That was the song of Moses and Miriam. And the song of Moses, Miriam, and the children of Israel after the deliverance at the Red Sea was what he was referring to. But when we look at the song of Moses, Miriam, and the children of Israel, we see that when they sang that song, they added several aspects to David's praise, which David omitted. David's exaltation of the Lord is a Distillation. He wasn't going to verbatim give the song, but he was distilling it, pointing the people back to that period of deliverance. So his exaltation of the Lord is a distillation of the song of Israel with the intention of pointing back to the incredible event of deliverance. Notice where he's drawing his praise from. Exodus chapter 15, verse 1 and following. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed 
gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him in habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Notice the militancy of this song. The victory behind this song. The deliverance behind this song. Notice, Israel goes further. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. This was the God of David. This was the God of Israel. This is the God of the New Testament. Notice. And in the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright as an heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw out my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. This is the God that David knew. And this is the God that David is referring back to. But notice verse 11. This is where David begins to focus his praises upon. He asks the question, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Who is like unto thee, O Lord? And David is asking that rhetorical question, Who is like thee, O God? And the answer is, nothing and no one. Miriam adds that God is fearful in praises and glorious in his holiness. It is the aspect of God's holiness which is unique to God's character. In other words, he is separate, he is sanctified, he is holy. He's separate from his creatures and his creation because he is God the creator. In other words, there is a distinct in other words, there is a distinct creature-creator separation between God and His creation and His creatures. He is not like His creation. He's above, He's holy, He's separate, He's sovereign, He's majestic. And David understood this, and David embraced this. So whenever you think about God, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about the, the, the blonde flowing hair, Jesus with the cow eyes holding little lammy? Or a majestic God, the God of David, the God that slays the wicked, who destroys Pharaoh, who destroys the Egyptian, and the wicked who seek to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And it is according to that distinction, that that creature-creator distinction, and that perfection that God has determined, according to that, He is determined to show his mercy to his people. Notice verse 13 of Exodus 15 and following. Thou in thy mercy, 
because of thy mercy, because of that which Israel and his people do not deserve, according to thy mercy, hast thou led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. The people shall fear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold upon the inhabitants of Palestinia. That should be the testimony of the church. But the church today, because they don't embrace the God of David, the God of Scripture, the church today is impotent. It's a mockery. But notice, then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they shall be still as a stone till thy people pass over, O Lord, till thy people pass over which thou hast purchased. This is your God. This is not a fearful God who has raised up a fearful people. This is your God. Notice the blessing of God. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the house of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel, the children of Israel, the redeemed of God, they went on dry land in the midst of the sea. David's praise is simply an abbreviated version of Exodus 15. Because he wanted to recognize who exactly is giving him this blessing. Second, David makes sure he adds what Miriam declared that there is no other God beside Yahweh. And this is a fundamental fact of the creation and every institution known to man. There is none other than God that can be God or be considered God-like. Not the state, not institutions, no one. Not man, not the state, not the CDC, not the Federal Reserve, not the church, no one and nothing. God is unique and only He can be and claim to be God. So whenever something other than God claims God-like power, authority, or influence, we need to repudiate that. We need to speak out against that. We can no longer remain idle. Speaking to Isaiah, God makes this perfectly clear. Notice what He says, Isaiah 45, verse 5 and 6. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun. Notice, this is the commission. So that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. He wants everyone to know that. It's not Buddha, it's not Krishna, it's not Allah, it's Yahweh. This statement has a soteriological aspect to it. In other words, it has a salvation warning attached to it. It means that there is by no other means, there's no other means by which mankind can be redeemed. Not Krishna, not Buddha, not Allah, but Christ the King. There was no other God but me. 
Only Yahweh, the God of Scripture and the God of the created universe can deliver a soul from hell. And so when Jesus stated that he and the Father were one, he was confirming that he was God and therefore the only way to salvation. Note how Isaiah continues with this declaration which includes God stating that he alone is the Savior in verse 21 and following of Isaiah 45. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A just God. And here it is. And a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. David's praising God here for both his majesty and his salvation kindness in delivering him from Saul and for giving him an opportunity of a lifetime. Brothers and sisters, I kid you not, by being a Christian, you have the possibility of a lifetime. It's not just, I live my life and I go to heaven. That's not Christianity. Christianity is, I live my life in service to the king. I've been bought with a price. I am no longer my own. And I will do what it takes to glorify his name. That's Christianity. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. So David understands what a great blessing that he has been given now to serve the living and one true God. And that's what the church has failed to embrace. Too many Christians believe that they were taught to believe that God is there to serve them. God is not here to serve us. We are the servants. He is the master. Like a genie in the bottle he's become. In other words, ask for this and you get that. And ask for the other thing, he'll give you that. He exists only to give us what we want. Now this is not the God of Scripture. This is the God of the New Age Church. And yet... There are so many who think that that is what God is all about, to give them what they want. The God of Scripture, make no mistake about this, but the God of Scripture will be served in obedience and in love, and if He is not, He will destroy you. Jesus explains this in Luke chapter 17. Beginning in verse 7, notice what He says. But which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meat? And will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken? And afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I thought not. So likewise ye, when ye have done all those things which are commanded of you, You say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Christianity is so watered down today. It is so diluted that we don't even know what Christianity is all about, historically speaking. We think because we get up on Sunday morning, we come to church, we're doing our duty. We think that because we're homeschooling our children, that's it, we're doing our duty. Christianity is so much more than that. Christianity, if it's not total, it's nothing. If your service is not total and comprehensive, it is nothing. You're stealing from God who has purchased you. And David understood that. 
But he also understood something else. According to 2 Samuel 7.23 and following, notice, he says this, he expands on his praises and he moves not only to include Israel, but he now is going to include the entire known world. Notice, and what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible, for thy land before thy people, which thou hast redeemed to thee from Egypt, and from the nations and their gods. You see, David is looking bigger than just Israel. He understands that God is not only a God of men, but he's a God of nations. He judged Egypt because Egypt belonged to him. He had sovereignty over Egypt. He had sovereignty over Pharaoh, a non-Israelite nation. And in his sovereign decree, he destroyed them. So David understood that God is a God of nations. And this too is a fundamental aspect of the Great Commission. God's intention was to use Israel as a model, the Hebrew Republic as a model, showing the nations of the world what a righteous nation looks like. Israel's deliverance was intended for a global purpose. You know, maybe maybe Israel, after they got over the Red Sea, they were in the wilderness, say, oh, this is great, God loves us, this is wonderful, let's have a great time here in the wilderness, worshiping and eating manna. No, no, no. You are to build a national structure as a model for all the nations. It was bigger than just, I'm saving you, Israel. God's deliverance was intended for a global purpose to teach other nations that the way of holiness, justice, righteousness, and peace would have to follow. If it was to be just, we'd have to follow Israel. And this was the intention of Moses' admonition to the children of Israel just before they entered into the promised land. Notice what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. But what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? God wanted national submission and subjection to the Lord and His law. That was the crux of the Great Commission. And this is why Jesus said in Matthew 28, in that Great Commission, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever commanded you. In other words, teach them the law so that they would understand what a righteous governance looked like. But what does the church say today? Don't get involved. The world belongs to the devil. The world belongs to the people. We're going to hide out here and hope things get better. But the scope of the Great Commission goes beyond individual people. It goes beyond piety. Its intention is more comprehensive, extending to the nations of the world, and David understood that. The purpose of a people and a nation is for the glorification of God. And the only way to glorify God is to become a righteous people of a righteous nation. The purpose of salvation of individuals, is so that they build righteous nations. It is by this action that the kings of the earth will one day reconcile themselves to the Lord and His Messiah. 
And it is at that time when every knee bows to the kingly dominion of Christ when all the nations of the world will call him blessed. Okay, so how does this come about? How does that happen? It just doesn't happen by osmosis. What must be done to bring about a great revival of the nations? Well, it begins right here in the church. It begins in the church and from the fidelity of the families of the earth. This is the key to global revival. I think we make trivial the the gospel of Christ. We, we, We look at it as like an appendage rather than our whole life's purpose. The key to global revival begins here at the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, there are three components that empower the church to accomplish that task. Number one, the church must first embrace right doctrine. Its orthodoxy must be biblically sound. That includes their doctrine of salvation, eschatology, and the nature and structure and function of the church as it exists in the world. And it must stress that if the eschatological doctrine of Christ's total and comprehensive victory is not embraced, the church will forever be ineffective, waiting for the return of Christ, standing on that rapture rock, rather than the fact that he reigns now through his body, the church, and he will have dominion. So it's not enough to have an accurate soteriology. It's not enough to say, well, I know salvation is by grace alone, Christendom must once again understand that Christ has not failed within the confines of history, forcing him to return in order to complete what he declared to be finished originally, but rather has paved the way for a total and comprehensive victory of individuals, families, churches, and nations. Secondly, and just as important as orthodoxy is orthopraxy. The church must hold its members to strict orthopraxy. They must apply all of God's word to all of their life. It's faith for all of life. They must live ethical lives, faithful lives. They must be diligent in teaching their children worship and obedience, fear and love of the Lord. And this is the intention of Deuteronomy chapter 6, the hearing, the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Lord God, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall do this, 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 and this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And thirdly, finally, in order to accomplish the task of cultural dominion, the faithful church must be well funded. Without financial power, the church will remain impoverished, resulting in not being able to build biblical alternatives to the state's institutions. So how how are we to build medical centers, orphanages, colleges, economic systems, and every other institution that the state has commandeered if we're not funding the church? The Lord tells Malachi that for the nations to be blessed, the church must be abundantly funded so it can successfully develop a biblical society. Notice what he says, chapter 3 of Malachi, beginning in verse 10 and following. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open Open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer. Let me put it this way. I'll rebuke the IRS. I'll rebuke the state. I'll rebuke the devourer that's devouring your wherewithal for your sakes. And he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations. See the result? Fund the kingdom. And all nations, verse 12, shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. 
David then repeats his understanding as to why God has been so merciful in verse 24 of 2 Samuel 7. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever. And thou, O Lord, art become their God. The use of the word confirm, notice what it says, for thou hast confirmed to thyself, is a direct reference to God's covenant promise. In other words, God has confirmed his plan with an oath whereby he promises to do everything that he said he would do. He'll save a people for himself. He'll build his nations. He'll build his kingdom through Jesus Christ. He'll establish his kingdom on earth in time and in history within the history of mankind. This is what he promised. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and following. But when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself saying, surely will I bless thee. And multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise for men verily swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the unchangeableness, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, to which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, God is swearing by himself that he's going to do this. What more do we need? No doubt David gives a time reference as to the duration of this nation by using the word forever. The Hebrew word David uses for people in verse 24 can also be translated as nation. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy nation Israel to be a people unto thee forever. And thou, Lord, art become their God. And so once again, the focal point of the work of God in the world is for the establishment of nations according to his law so that all the nations of the world become one with Christ as the king. The one world government is not to be the one man envisioned by wicked mankind. It is what God is determining. It is his one world government made effectual by the shedding of his blood and by the empowerment of his spirit upon his saints, the church of Jesus Christ. David then doubles down on the eternal nature of God's goal in his prayer in the next two verses. But no doubt David praises God for his being so glorious and he's praising God in his glory through the establishment of God's blessing upon David's dynasty. So he's praising God and he says, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as thou hast said, and let thy name... Notice, God has just told David, I'm going to elevate you. I'm going to pour my blessing on you. So you think maybe David would say, and let my name be... No, 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 no. Let thy name be magnified forever. Now up until this point, David has addressed God as Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. It seems that whenever God refers to himself as Elohim, he is addressing the nations of the world. We see this most used in the Psalms. At this point here, in verse 25, David says, The Lord of hosts is the Elohim over Israel. Now, up until this point, he is speaking of Adonai Yahweh. 
But he switches and he speaks now Lord God, Elohim. And every time the word Elohim is used in the Hebrew, it seems as if, according to the Psalms, it seems as if he's switching from his covenant understanding to the nations of the world. So when he refers to himself as Yahweh, he's addressing his covenant people by his covenant name. But when he adds the Hebrew word Adonai to the title Yahweh, he's referring to himself as the master covenanter God. But here in verse 26, he switches. David departs from identifying God as Yahweh and calls him Yahweh Sebaoth, or the covenant God of forces which holds a military significance, which is perfectly harmonious with the way David has been talking. He's talking about Pharaoh being thrown into the sea, a military god who he calls the man of war. So God is moving David to speak and giving God all of the proper titles that he is due. Now remember, David himself is a man of war. He understands that whenever a kingdom is to be established amidst pagan nations, there will be conflict, there will be warfare. But the church doesn't want that. We just want to live our lives, raise our children, and send them off to a good career. Is that the gospel of Christ? Is that how we're teaching our children? David is saying that God, who is the man of war and the Lord of armies, who is Adonai, Yahweh, Elohim, is revealing all of this to David, implying that in order to build God's kingdom, in order to build the temple of God, there will be conflict. Not a a popular message. But it is a popular message that makes churches overflowing with people. God tells Isaiah that he will come as a man of war against all of his enemies. Notice 42.13 in Isaiah, the Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yet roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. He shall prevail. The reference to the roaring of a lion points directly to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the man of war. And this puts the timing of Isaiah's prophecy during the New Testament age when Jesus declares war on all of his enemies the enemies that come against him, the enemies of truth. And we are his army. And this is what we must recognize. The Christian life is a life of constant struggle while we labor to build the kingdom. The message is not Jesus will give you everything that your hearts desire, nor is it when you become a Christian or your troubles will vanish away. It's not a gospel message of material prosperity. It's not promising a life of bliss and happiness, but rather an internal and external conflict of warfare. Now, maybe you'll come back next week and maybe you won't. It depends on your view of Christianity. Now, Paul, when discipling Timothy within the New Testament era, says this, 2 Timothy 2.3, 2, 3 and 4. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth, entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. God has chosen us to be soldiers. If we are Christ, if we are one of the elect, if we are truly born again, we are one of his soldiers. 
And we will want to fight because that's the mentality of a soldier. Paul wants Timothy to know that if he's going to succeed as a follower of Christ, there will be pain. There will be torment. There will be suffering. There will be conflict. There will be difficulties. And in order to be a good soldier, he must shun the vanities of this life and not be ensnared by them. Now, there will be blessings, of course. Happiness, yes. Enjoyments in this life, absolutely. But the crux of the message is this. Gird up the loins of your mind and prepare for war. This warfare is basically philosophical and spiritual since the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. But that does not rule out physical conflict. This is the intention of the prophecy of Joel, which also has a time reference to the New Testament period in Joel 3, 9 and 10. Proclaim ye this among the nations. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. That's you. That's me. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. The question so many Christians ask is, why is the world in such a state? What's happened? Must be the end of the world. Oh, the devil's doing this. And Jesus is coming soon. You know, I want to just vomit out of my nose when I hear that stuff. I believe fundamentally we have not embraced the call to war against the philosophies of the wicked with rigor. Consider the problem in detail. The church's view of the Christ falls into one of three categories. Christ in the world. Well, this view sees Christ and his church as living in the world, but not of the world, which translates into not engaging in the affairs of the world. These are called pietists or purists. These are those who have a two-kingdom mentality and have surrendered God's glorious creation to the wicked. The second group is those who believe Christ is of the world. And we see this more today than ever before. This sees Jesus, his church, and the meaning of scripture transitioning into whatever the world dictates. Oh, the world wants to embrace that? Fine. That's Christ of the world. The world wants to embrace that? Fine. Let's have Christ of the world. Not in the world, but of the world. The world becomes inerrant, and his philosophies become the philosophies of the church. Let's just embrace everyone. We have to have a a big tent. These two positions of the church have led to its demise. And so whenever either of these positions are held or adopted, the world goes into a graveyard spiral, into perdition, and the judgment of God is the result, and that's where we are today. Now the third and only legitimate position is Christ transforming the world. That means the church. This position understands that Christ and his church exists in order to transform the world by bringing it into submission to his righteousness. The power of the gospel is to be declared for the express purpose of transformation. And brothers and sisters, the gospel is powerful. Individual transformation, family transformation, church transformation, national transformation, and the transformation of every human institution and societal construct known to mankind. If Christ is not understood as the comprehensive and systemic transforming Christ, then he is not the Christ of Scripture. David ends with this. And now, Adonai Yahweh, thou art that Elohim, and thy words be true, and thou hast promised his goodness unto thy servant. Therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee, For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it. And with thy blessing, let the house of thy servant be blessed forever.
Next, we shall explore the connection between the king and the law as David prepares for war against the enemies of God once again in order to secure his kingdom. All of this for the glory of his Lord, the glory of God, and for the glory of the kingdom. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.